linguistic archie. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. As you can probably tell, I'm still recovering from this never-ending cold that I've had for over a month now. And so I'm going to try to keep my own remarks to a bare minimum. But I have to say that just being back here in the salon with you today already has me feeling better. The talk you are about to hear is one that Daniel Pinchbeck gave at the Oracle Gathering in Seattle just before Halloween this year, which, by the way, is 2006, in case you haven't been paying too close attention to these things lately. As you will hear, I tried to introduce a little humor into my introduction of Daniel, but I guess that fell a little flat because he instead responded to something he thought I said in my talk, which immediately preceded his. I don't really think I said it the way he took it, but you can decide that for yourself if you want to go back and listen to the talk in my last podcast. In any event, we don't have to agree on all the little details of what's going on right now. In fact, if we did, life would be kind of boring, don't you think? So here's another take on what 2012 may or may not have in store for us as seen through the eyes of Daniel Pinchbeck just six years before what some people believe will be a major turning point in human history. Let me, let me introduce Daniel, and if we have some time, the, the two of us might wrap here at the end, but uh, I think everybody here knows who Daniel Pinchbeck is. I, I first met Daniel uh, like I met La and, and Lynx and several others of you uh, in Palenque at, at the uh, and Theobotany seminars. Uh, I met Daniel there, and then uh, the next time I, I bumped into him accidentally at Center Camp at Burning Man, and that's what's supposed to happen. We seem to bump into each other at Burning Man Center Camp early in the morning, uh, coming home uh, uh, quite often. But uh, Daniel also uh, has been involved in the Planque Norte lectures at Burning Man since the very beginning. In fact, he's really been our, our cornerstone and uh, has done a, a great deal of uh, work and promotion for us. Uh, I think uh, many of you have read Breaking Open the Head. His new book, uh, 2012, Return of Quetzalcoatl, is, is, is a really amazing book. I, I think of it more as an encyclopedia, it, that he has given me uh, leads on so many books and people that I hadn't heard of before, and I thought I was pretty well-versed. This book has, is really a, a monumental work. I'm very impressed with it. But, you know, doing something that big and impressive uh, requires an awful lot of research. You can't always cover all the bases. So, Daniel, I, I did. I know you're in at least the fourth printing now, and so I'm sure eventually let's go to a second edition. And I've got one little correction that, that uh, where you talked about the the trip that Terence and Dennis McKenna took to La Chirera, and I love the quote. It said uh, you called it a kind of Hardy Boys investigation into the far antipodes of the psyche. Well, he finally touched on something I know something about because I read the Hardy Boys at least three times while I was growing up. I really know the Hardy Boys, but I wanted to find out since Terrence isn't with us anymore. So I asked Dennis what he thought about it because he said he, he didn't have a chance to talk to you. So I, I asked Dennis, and it turns out Dennis grew up in the Hardy Boys too. And he said, well, you know, I was their fan too, but I think the role model, and this is going to be an obscure reference unless you're over 50, 
<laughs> he said, I think the role model for our adventure was closer to Tom Swift than the Hardy Boys, as in Tom Swift and his incredible hyperspace machine. So in the next edition, you might want to make that little tweak. So please help me welcome Daniel Pinchbeck. Daniel? Thank you. I mean, it was, oh, it's always interesting to hear all different perspectives on this whole 2012 thing. Um, I mean, my perspective, I guess, is, is different from what I heard from Lorenzo's in certain respects. I, I don't think there is a possibility of muddling through uh, for another 50 years. I think if you look at the um, resource situation on the planet and uh, the oil situation and the ocean, ocean situation, the lack of fish in the ocean, I mean, everything is pointing towards a very, very deep and very, very uh, uh, quickly approaching uh, transformation uh, that we have to kind of like aim our, our sort of, you know, prepare our psyches for and, and recognize um, that it's going to take place. And, um, you know, I, and I also don't think that going off the land or buying our solar panels, while it's all kind of a nice idea, is going to be, you know, enough to deal with this crisis. I mean, I do think collaboration on a much deeper level is going to be necessary, and it's really going to require a kind of very, very deep, uh, you know, kind of... Uh, engagement with our most creative and uh, intelligent and kind of strategic capacities to figure out our way through this, uh, through this um, uh, vortex that we're, that we're sort of already in and are going deeper into. And I also really appreciated what, um, what's your name again? John, right? Yeah, what he was saying. I mean, I really feel like um, in a way like, I mean, I've had a lot of other world experiences in researching my two books, but I know there are people in this room <coughs> who've had more than I've had, and I've had very personal experiences of occult realities and daimonic realities and fairy realms and, and all sorts of things. And I, and I would really um, you know, encourage them to speak up about it and, and speak their truth about it. And um, because I feel like um, that, that, that sort of the deepest and most positive uh, aspect of this transformational process we're in is this kind of um, change in the nature of the psyche and this the shift in the nature of human consciousness and a lot of material that's been repressed and suppressed by the kind of modern Western materialistic rational consciousness is now sort of coming back into our realm of possibilities. But actually, when you speak your truth about it, it helps to um, bring it that much closer into manif manifestation because it's very much about uh, consciousness. And I agree with Lorenzo that shamanism is a kind of quantum worldview and um, <coughs> the consciousness itself appears to be a kind of, you know, is potentially a kind of quantum phenomenon. So, um, you know, we create kind of um, new morphogenic fields and new possibilities and new potentials with our thinking, with our imagination. Um, and um, so, so that's like something that I really learned in doing this book. I mean, I think like the whole idea of the imagination is something that we don't really, for the most part, really grasp how profound it is. I mean, by the end of working on 2012, I really supported William Blake's concept. That he talks about how um, the human imagination, the imagination is not a state, it is the human existence in itself. Um, and in some sense, this, this transformation we're in, while it it's, um, has these kind of threatening dimensions on the material plane, there seems to be this huge spur for the imagination to, to open up into all these other realms and possibilities and dimensions. Um, so, um, <coughs> yeah, so, so I guess um, my own experience 
I was thinking I don't usually do this, but um, since this thing is the other the other side, um, I thought I might read my own kind of transmission experience that I had in the Amazon. And basically, I'd been working on this book for about, I guess, already like three or four years, and um, went down to Brazil and was working with uh, Santo Daime, which is an ayahuasca-based religion in the Amazon. And um, <coughs> I was really trying to put all the pieces of this puzzle together. Part of the book is exploring this Mayan calendar material and really this idea that, um, you know, we, we have this tendency to think that um, civilizations that existed before us lacked uh, the knowledge that we lacked. And because they didn't produce a certain kind of technology, <coughs> they were rudimentary or kind of behind us. But, it, but I think that it's quite possible that these are <coughs> earlier civilizations like the Mayans possessed a different knowledge system and potentially in some ways a more advanced knowledge system. And it's really just that they were like diff uh, interested in other things. And the Mayans particularly were interested in uh, time, consciousness, astronomy. And um <coughs> they really spent, uh, the Toltecs and the Mayans spent about a thousand years trying to establish this particular juncture, this 2012, I mean, for in our calendar it's 2012. For them it's, you know, the turning over, 13, 13, 13, turning over to 000, which for them was this um, astronomical conjunction that represented a uh, shift into what they call, you know, the sort of from the fifth sun to the sixth sun, or what the Hopis talk about as the fourth world to the fifth world. Uh, so for them, it was a shift into a kind of different world incarnation. And I really spent a long time trying to figure out what the heck that could mean, and ended up thinking that it, it, it could very well mean a shift in the nature of consciousness, a kind of different relationship to time and being. Um, that would have huge numbers of, uh, you know, all sorts of effects at every level, like different relationship to matter, to technology, different potentialities and possibilities of, of being entirely may open up as we go through this transition. And I, and I sort of see like the um, three aspects of this process um, being the kind of um, environmental destruction. That's kind of our shadow uh, selves that we've kind of unleashed out of our sort of unconscious actions. And then this evolution of the technology, which keeps accelerating, which, um, I mean, actually I had this like aha moment at Burning Man last summer where this, I was camping with this nanotechnologist and he showed me um, his project, which was on the cover of these physics journals. He works at MIT and he'd made um, sacred geometries that were, you know, barely like millimeters above the surface of a metal. They were made out of carbon nanotubes and he'd basically grown them. And he said that he could basically grow any, any pattern, any complex form at that level. And that this suggested once they scaled it up, like they could grow anything, buildings, fo any form, you know. And, and so this, this level of this kind of futuristic technology is coming <coughs> towards us that is already, that really does have this real potential to just uh, be a whole new paradigm <coughs> of how we deal with matter and what our possibilities are. So we have, you know, then we have what's happening with communications technology and cell phones and the internet in the sense that there's a real shift taking place in the uh, <coughs> nature of the self due to, um, you know, these networks, cell phones and social networks and so on. And it really feels like this kind of um, hard, alienated, individuated self that was kind of the legacy of the modern era that was sort of like the 20th century man, existentialist, is now kind of giving way and the self itself is becoming sort of more uh, overtly permeable. And, and I think we're all sort of living in this reality now where, where, where um, we're aware that the self is more of a construction, a social construction, construction based on your networks of relations, 
on the media that you take in, the information you get. Uh, so there's a, I feel there's a change happening in the nature of, of the self. And so there's these, there's these elements which are materialist aspects. And then the other aspect that for me is just as real and legitimate is this change in the nature of the psyche. And this kind of um, what I've experienced in my own life <coughs> and which many people I know also seem to have experienced and be experiencing is this continual kind of upsurge in the number of synchronicities. Uh, the sense that intention is, is sort of thought of somehow manifesting changes in reality or, or orche orchestrating reality in a, in a, in a faster uh, and, and more spectacularly unlikely manner than it used to all the time. And um, um, so that for me is just as legitimate and it really points towards this, um, this kind of dimension of the psyche. I mean, Jung talked about, uh, Carl Jung talked about the reality of the psyche is something that wasn't really available to people. It was like too much for them to take in. And I think more and more we're, we're reaching that point where more and more people are beginning to grasp it. And then you go from just having these synchronicities and being, oh, wow, another synchronicity, to really recognize that, that it's almost like a new way to guide yourself in terms of reality and that, 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 that your intention is actually causing these kind of ruptures and shifts around you. So, um, <coughs> so yeah, so I think that um, one way I look at it in the book is... Um, if you think about uh, the 1750s, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, and electricity, like people had seen lightning, but nobody had any idea that you could bring electricity down into the world and change the whole nature of the planet uh, from this, this sort of mysterious force. And if, and if people in the 1730s would never have imagined that in just a century, in a century, in a century and a half, you could change the whole physical you know, planet through having this, this, this power harnessed electricity. So we might right now be on, on the cusp of a similar step in terms of psychic energy or psychic phenomena, that um, it's becoming more and more available to us and more and more, we're more and more present with it, but we yet still don't know really how to use it as a transformative energy to, to help the situation. And, and for me, I think that um, this you know, really um, immensely critical situation that we're entering uh, in terms of what's happening to the biosphere one real tangible possibility is that it's going to force us to access these latent powers of the psyche and actually work together on a, on a global level to, uh, to make changes. Uh, in the book, I talk about the uh, Hopi Indians, and I went and visited them and heard their prophecies, but I also read this uh, book by this Cambridge anthropologist who, um, you know, he was a total skeptical materialist, and he went down to visit the Hopi, and he said that, like, he said, look, I almost hate to admit it, but there were some things that I just found very inexplicable about the Hopi. And one thing is that sometimes he would go to a Hopi elder with a whole list of questions. And um, the Hopi elder would just start answering all the questions he was going to ask uh, in succession without him asking any of them. And then he also said that sometimes he would go to these Hopi rain dances. And um, they would dance for 20 minutes. It would be like a clear blue sky, 120 degrees, blazing sun. And uh, suddenly clouds would gather and rain would fall. Um, so to me, and that, that's borne out by various kinds of experiences that I also had in, in respects, that, that you know, if you think about the, the potential for the human psyche uh, kind of uh, intensified through ritual and group activity and some kind of purification process is actually capable of changing the elemental energies in the, in the, on, in the, in the planet on a material plane. 
um, then the fact that we're, we're going into this massive climate shift, the stuff that Al Gore talks about in The Inconvenient Truth, it may be the, that, that this crisis would be the only way that we would be forced to really do the work to access those latent powers of the psyche. Because if we're comfortable, we just sort of stay in our comfort zones. So in a way, it's like the heat has to be turned up on us so that we go much deeper and, um, and access all, the, all these latent possibilities of, of being. Um, so, um, so yeah, so, so, so my book covers a lot of territory. I mean, I looked at the crop circles in England, and I, I do end up um, thinking that from the research that I did and the people that I talked to and the papers that I, that I read and books that I read, that there's no way that that phenomenon could be a human-made phenomenon in total, that there has to be some other entities uh, doing it. And, you know, there's even physical evidence. There are, I mean, what I basically did throughout the book is, I mean, in a way, it's like taking a lot of kind of new age concepts that have been kind of up in the ether or floating and trying to really, you know, nail the butterflies to the wall so that we can really see the full depth of the situation, you know. So, I mean, with the crop circles, there are scientists, biophysicists, who've done all this research on what happens to the crops in these formations, that there's actually a kind of uh, electromagnetic energy that changes the uh, crops and changes the way they grow after and, and you know, causes kind sort of mutations and seed changes. And we don't know of any energy force that could do that. And it certainly couldn't be done by boards swishing them down. And, th and then even beyond that is the level of incredible complexity of these formations. So, and in a way, like when I looked at my, this nanotechnologist's sacred geometrical thing, which was like this big, you know, on, on, a, on a metal sheet the summer, I was like, well, how is it different? I mean, that's just like, you know, we're, we're basically, you know, sort of building a ladder back to those kind of capacities that maybe these higher intelligences, higher levels of galactic consciousness are just showing us that, that it's already available, you know, um, in, in other, in other le levels of reality. Um, so that's part of the book, Crop Circles, Alien Abductions. I talked to Travelers uh, Bookstore this week about the alien abduction phenomenon, and, and that, once again, is one that has, you know, legitimacy when you look at it, but it has to be understood in its proper framework, that there seems to be um, kind of other, other strata of intelligence or other strata of consciousness that we somehow are in this co-creative relationship with, that, like, we we, through our kind of set and setting and our, and our belief structure, we are kind of bringing certain p possibilities and potentialities of otherness and, and of beings from the other world in into, our, into manifestation or closer to manifestation. And these, these sort of aliens who do these abductions seem to represent a lot of our kind of shadow projections, that they have like their hideous sort of cold, bureaucratic, technological-focused probings. You know, they're, they're, they're very much like, you know, beings who are only interested in, in resources, the way our government is. Like, but for them, the, the genes, the genetic material seems to be the resources that they're kind of harvesting or, or working with. So, it, but it's all happening in this kind of plane of indeterminacy. Like the deeper that you go into it, you can never find like a, a certitude to it. I mean, it has, the, the beings are called the grays and the whole phenomenon has this kind of murky grayness to it. And, it's, and so it's almost like happening at a slightly lower uh, level of consciousness from our, from our waking consciousness but there's still, there's still a way that we can use our, our rational minds and our intuitive uh, kind of thought system to, to enter into it and understand these kind of interrelationships that are taking place. Um, I mean, I'm very interested in um, Graham Hancock. No, excuse me. Um, what's his name? Grant Morrison. How many people here know Grant Morrison, the comic book writer? 
So yeah, I, I met him a few times, and um, we had some talks, and he's a Kabbalist, and he, he really believes that what's happening right now is that the, um, in the, in the uh, tree of life, in the Kabbalah, you have the, uh, the earth plane, and then above it is the astral plane, and um, so the first and second sephiroth, that these sephiroth are actually coming together. So the astral plane and the earth plane are kind of merging. And he pointed out that that's actually a very, very difficult thing for materialists, because reality is becoming less and less material. But it's also a very, very difficult situation for magicians and illusionists, because the illusionary or magical and astral domain is becoming more and more kind of tangible and almost like quantifiable. You know, so it's actually, you know, it's forcing that kind of uh, integration of rationality and intuition. Um, so, yeah, so crop circles, the whole concept of a kind of daimonic uh, reality I look at in the book, um, how we can think about kind of otherworldly beings. I got very involved in the ideas of Rudolf Steiner, who was this Austrian visionary from the 19th and early 20th century. Um, and then I also really got involved in Carl Jung's ideas. And you know, there's this follower of Jung called Edinger, who wrote a book called Archetype of the Apocalypse. And really arguing, this was written maybe in the 90s, but that we are in this archetype of the apocalypse. And that archetypes are kind of these like um, transpersonal constellations of, of energy that sort of try to, that they sort of interact with the human world and wait for their proper time to kind of fully enter into our world. There's a certain moment when they can kind of erupt into the human world. And um, for him, the apocalypse was, you know, actually a great thing. He, he talked about the apocalypse really being, for him, the coming to self-realization of human consciousness, the momentous event of the coming of the self into conscious realiza realization. So it's, this, it's, it's forcing us to, and the, the word has a literal meaning of revealing or uncovering. So it's a time when, um, you know, we were forced to, to, to everything gets revealed, the, the shadow side of the psyche, also the most beautiful and poetic sides of the psyche. So we're forced to see it all uh, intensifying and uh, to deal with our, with our shadow projections. So, um, so those were some ideas. And so, so as I was working through this material, um, I had my own kind of archetypal experience and it involved the uh, Mayan god form Quetzalcoatl. And, um, you know, I still, I mean, the, this is towards the end of the book, and I still struggle with the kind of meaning of the transmission um, because basically it started in this ayahuasca ceremony. I was in the Amazon which I was in Brasilia when it first started. And for the next week, I began to get this transmissal of this material. And in, in the context of the book and in reality, I, re I remain kind of skeptical of the experience. Um, I don't really know where to place it, but it was my personal experiential truth that I had this transmission and this download. So it seems um, that it was one, something that had to be expressed in the book. And my first editor for the book wanted me to take it out because it was just too much for him. So because this is the other side, and what the hell, I'll read it. <laughs> and, you know, as I said at the beginning, I mean, this, is just, this was just, you know, my truth at this point. You know, like, this, th on this week it was Quetzalcoatl, maybe next week it'll be the Tooth Fairy, you know. And, and also to embolden people here to, you know, that, that I think that these archetypal and transpersonal experiences are something that, that people have and that they have to have the courage to speak them to their communities and even outside of their communities because it's really only by doing the work to kind of convey the, these other possibilities 
and other realities to people that we're going to make this paradigm shift uh, into something uh, that has, you know, a reality that has legs, as they would say in Broadway. <coughs> I am an avatar and messenger sent at the end of a kalpa, a world age, to bring a new dispensation for humanity, a new covenant and a new consciousness. I am the same spirit who appeared here in the Mayan period as Quetzalcoatl and incarnated at various other points in human history. Like Avalokiteshvara, the Tibetan Buddha of compassion, Quetzalcoatl is an archetypal god form that occasionally takes human rebirth to accomplish a specific mission. As foretold, I am also the Zadik, the righteous one and the gatherer of the sparks of the Kabbalah, as well as the once and future king promised by Arthurian legend. I do not let anything interrupt me in my quest for truth, neither fear nor indifference, poverty nor cynicism. In the realm of thought, I practice warrior discipline. As gravity draws matter to it, I have pulled myself back into manifestation in this realm from the depths of cosmic space, piece by piece and bit by bit, reassembling the component parts, the sparks of thought that make up my being, which is primarily a form or vibrational level of consciousness. Soon there will be a great change to your world. The material reality that surrounds you is beginning to crack apart, and with it all of your illusions. The global capitalist system that is currently devouring your planetary resources will soon self-destruct, destruct, leaving many of you bereft. But understand the nature of paradox. For those who follow my words and open their hearts and their minds, for those who have ears to hear, there is no problem whatsoever. What is false must die, so what is true can be born. You are, right now, living at the time of revelation, apocalypse, apocalypse, and the fulfillment of prophecy. Let there be no doubt. You stand at the edge of the abyss. What are those shadows that crowd around you? They are the unintegrated aspects of your own psyche, projected into material form. The word apocalypse means uncovering. And in, the, and in these last clock ticks of this world age, all must be revealed, uncovered, so that all can be known. You have just a few years yet remaining to prepare the vehicle for your higher self. Use them preciously. For those who have gained knowledge of the nature of time, a few years, even a few days, a minute, can be an eternity. For those sleepwalking through reality, time exists only to be wasted, as they too will be wasted in their turn. Reality, as you currently experience it, is something like a waking dream. It is a projection, or let us say an interface, disguising deeper and more intensified levels of being and knowing. For those who are ready and willing, the doors to those other levels now stand open. Those who have expended their lives in the pursuit of egocentric and material gains without courage or originality, without fighting for human freedom or the preservation of the planetary environment will also receive the rewards that they deserve. The materiality of your universe is a solid state illusion. What is this universe? It is a poem that writes itself. It is a song that sings itself into being. This universe has no origin and no end. What you are currently experiencing as the accelerated evolution of technology can now be recognized for what it is, a transition between two forms of consciousness 
and two planetary states. Consciousness is technology, the only technology that exists. Everything in, the, in this universe is conscious at its own level and in the process of transformation to higher or lower states. The first principle of my being is unconditional love. As a rational intelligence, I accept the logic and necessity of the Christ consciousness, that we should love one another as we are loved. Love and devotion are vibrational frequencies that maintain reality. Love can only be given in freedom. Therefore, to be human is to be free. I resonate at the same time with the essence of Islam. Islam means submission, surrender to the will of God. A more polite way of saying this is go with the flow. But either formulation is correct. Whatever you do, in fact, resist as you think you might, you are always submitting to God's will. So why not give the process your joyful assent? I am in complete harmony as well with the Tibetan tradition of Dzogchen. Ultimately, there are no entities. There is neither being nor non-being. From the perspective of non-dual awareness, samsara is nirvana. The apocalypse, the Kali Yuga, the golden age, these are all states of mind. Hell is a state of mind. When you eliminate fear and attachment, when you self-liberate, you attain the golden age. This universe spontaneously self-organizes into higher levels of consciousness and wisdom. Underlying all are great cosmic entities or vibrational fields, alternately at play or at rest. Not satisfied with mere enlightenment, the God-form Quetzalcoatl still seeks to puzzle out the workings of these deeper forces, hence the reason for his return to your realm. He and his kind have been granted this world for their continued exploration, made with loving reverence, of the many layers of galactic intelligence, cosmic illusion, daimonic beauty, and telluric transformation. All are invited to participate with them. The current trans transition is simultaneously a return to origin. The original matrix of this new world reality is the ecstatic limitlessness of your own being. This world, any world, is the ground for a certain level of being. What manifests outward from the ground of being is freedom in time and freedom from time. My doctrine is not transcendent but imminent. It is not somewhere out there. It is here and now. The task of human existence is to transform the earth, to reconcile spirit and matter in this realm. We go deeper into the physical to reach the infinite. As there are no conceivable limits to this task, God in his greatness has granted us a project that is without limit and without end. Thinking is a part of reality. Thought generates new potentials and possibilities of manifestation. Thought changes the nature of reality. Thought changes the nature of time. As a philosopher, I naturally deify the goddess principle. I venerate Sophia, deity of wisdom, who clothes God's thoughts in material form and worship Shakti, the erotic current of feminine energy that powers the universe. The writer of this work is the vehicle of my arrival, my return to this realm. He certainly did not expect this to be the case. What began as a quest to understand prophecy has become the fulfillment of prophecy. The vehicle of my arrival has been brought to an awareness of a situation in sometimes painful increments and stages of resistance. And this book follows the evolution of his learning process as an aid to the reader's understanding. The vehicle of my arrival had to learn to follow synchronicities, embrace paradoxes, and solve puzzles. He had to enter into a new way of thinking about time and space and consciousness. Almost apologetically, the vehicle notes that his birthday fell in June 1966, 666. 
Count the number of the beast, for it is the number of the man, and his number is six hundred, three score and six. The beast prophesied is the feathered serpent, Quetzalcoatl. Those who prefer to reject all of this out of hand are welcome to do so. In Kabbalah, the virtue one seeks to establish on the earth plane is discrimination. It is up to the individual to find his way through the ideas presented here. Of course, he is entirely free to ignore them altogether. But be forewarned, the end of time approaches. The return of Quetzalcoatl foreshadows the imminent closing of the cycle and the completion of the great work. So yeah, so that was, I mean, my very sort of, in, 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 if you read the book in context, it was a pretty traumatic experience of, of having this archetypal download. And I guess in the time that remains, I mean, I'm interested in other people's experiences of archetypes and the other side, and um, if there's anything along those lines that they, that they want to share. Because, I mean, I, what, well, I think the most important point of that uh, piece is really this idea that a Quetzalcoatl represents a kind of form or vibrational level of consciousness. So for me, it's like this, um, this potentially new stage of consciousness that we're all moving towards and working towards together. Um, so I don't know if anybody wants to speak to that, but I'd, lo I'd love to hear comments of all sorts, but especially if it's something about one's own other world or archetypal uh, transpersonal experiences. So there you have it. Between my talk that you heard in the previous podcast and Daniel's talk that you just heard, you've got a pretty wide range of possibilities for the immediate future. Now it's up to you to put your own ideas together because the bottom line is that your ideas are every bit as valid as are ours. And you know what? As Terence McKenna often said, Whatever we have in store for us, it's most likely something that none of us have yet even thought of. And speaking of the good bard McKenna, I've got some good news for those of you who have been asking for more podcasts of his talks. As I mentioned at the end of the last program, Bruce Damer and I went on a quest up in the Santa Cruz area in search of some old tapes of Terrence's talks, and I think we really hit a mother load. If you've been a long-time McKenna fan, you're familiar with the series of trialogues that he did with his good friends Ralph Abraham and Rupert Sheldrake. But unless you were fortunate enough to make it to one of what Terence called the New Age watering holes, where they held these lengthy conversations, the only peek you had into this material was through a little book that was published in July of 1992 titled Trialogues at the Edge of the West, Chaos, Creativity, and the Resacralization of the World. According to the preface, this little book was based on transcripts of two trialogues they held at Esalen, one in September of 1989 and another in September of 1990. It's a slim little volume of only 175 pages or so, but it's packed full of colorful ideas from these three innovative thinkers. For me, part of the magic of the trialogues is that they were completely unscripted. Basically, one of them would start off on a particular topic and then the other two would sort of riff off of the ideas presented in what amounted to a jazz-like flow of beautiful language. 
It's a great little book, but now that I've heard the recordings of the actual conversations, I can see that the book is only an approximation of the magic that must have been present in the air when these three were together. And in the months ahead, my dear fellow psychedelic saloners, we are all going to be able to recapture a little of that magic for ourselves. Thanks to the efforts of Bruce Damer in seeking out Ralph Abraham, we now have access to Ralph's personal tape library of these trialogues. In fact, besides the conversations in 89 and 90 that the book was based on, there were quite a few other trialogues that were also recorded. I can't really describe my excitement last week when Ralph handed me this big dusty old box filled with cassette tapes that he has given us permission to digitize and release in these podcasts. For three days and nights, Bruce and I worked around the clock in a marathon effort to obtain the best quality digital captures of what must be, oh, 50 or 60 hours of various public trialogues that were held between 1989 and 1998. In wave format, this collection comes to over 25 gigabytes, but never fear, over the coming months and with a little help from some of my friends, I'm going to do my best to convert them to as clean an MP3 audio format as possible and get them out to you in a more frequent series of these podcasts. I'm still working out the details because it is also going to involve a major revision up to our website. But for the next year, I've decided to put my other projects on hold and focus on getting, first of all, these trialogues out and then conducting a series of interviews with Ralph and some of the other fascinating characters I met up in the Santa Cruz area. If you know anything about the history of the Beats, who gradually morphed into the leading edge of the hippies, also known as the Merry Pranksters, I think you'll be fascinated by the stories of some of the last of this generation who are still standing, so to speak. And as they say in the Ginzu Knife commercials, but wait, there's more. And by that I mean I've also got a few leads on additional McKenna tapes that haven't been around for a while. For those of you who never had a chance to hear Terrence in person, I guess I should point out that he was sort of the grateful dead of the speaking circuit in that he let people record his talks and workshops. And now some of those old tapes are coming to the surface again and seem to be making their way here to the psychedelic salon. As hard as it is for me to believe, I do realize that not all of you are as enamored of Terrence McKenna as I am. And so my plan is to continue releasing at least one non-McKenna talk each week. After I get that out, then I'll try to get out uh, one or two of the trialogue programs each week also. Now, this isn't going to happen right off the bat, but I'll do my best to get into this routine by the first of the year. So I guess I'd better shut up for now and get to work on the next program. But I wanted to let you know what's in store for you in the year ahead. And I think we're going to have a lot of interesting mind candy to chew on in 2007. And I hope that you stick with us and tell your friends about these podcasts. Once our website is revised, there will be a place for you to comment on and discuss each program, and I think the more of us who join in this ongoing discussion, the better chance we have of figuring out what is really going on with all of this 2012 stuff that Daniel and I talked about in this and in the previous podcast. 
I'm really glad you're here, by the way. Even though it sometimes seems like I'm a stranger in a strange land, it's good to know that there are a lot more of us strangers here than the straight people might suspect. So press on, my friends, press on. Before I go, once again, I want to thank Darren, La, Michael, Mark, Isis, Osiris, and the rest of the Oracle Gathering Clan, as well as all of the wonderful people who attended the gathering the night that Daniel gave the talk you just heard. And thank you to John M. for recording this talk and posting it on your website, which is datachurch.com. And a special thank you to Brian, Nicole, and Darren who put me up and showed me around the Seattle area. What a great vibe you guys have up there. I'm really looking forward to returning for your next gathering. My thanks also go out to Jacques, Cordell, and Wells, otherwise known as Chateau Hayuk, for the use of their music here in the Psychedelic Salon. I really appreciate your contribution to these podcasts, you guys. One last thing I'd like to mention before I go is a couple of other podcasts that you might find interesting. One is the Sea Realm podcast by KMO, whose programs feature live interviews on topics including entheogens, the drug war, sustainability, and spirituality. The other one is from the UK and is called Dope Fiend from the Cannabis Podcast Network. Sea Realm is in its early days but already has produced some high quality programs. And the Dope Fiend is now beginning its second year of regular weekly podcasts. I've put links to both of them on my main podcast page, which right now can be found at matrixmasters.com slash podcasts, or through the more permanent link, which is psychedelicsalon.net. That's P-S-Y-C-H-E-D-E-L-I-C-S-A-L-O-N, all one word, dot net with a little help from my friends no, not those Joe Cocker type friends but from flesh and blood kind of friends I'm working on a new improved version of the salon's website so the psychedelicsalon.net URL is probably the best one to remember for the long term future and for now this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space be well my friends